So Money episode 1187, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. Ask for our news Friday, April 16th, 2021. Some news on the home front. Our son went back to school, in school, y'all, for the first time since March of 2020. Had not seen the inside of a classroom since March 2020. Let me tell you, it was both heartwarming and heartbreaking. He came home from school. We picked him up and he was elated. He was so thrilled. Nervous in the beginning, he admitted, because who wouldn't be, right? New school too. He's never been inside this particular school since we moved to New Jersey. But uh, I was, you know, I was worried for him, but also I knew he had it. You know, parents, we just know your kid's got something. I'm like, he's going to be fine because my kid loves to be with people. So <laughs> this was definitely a change, but a good change for him. Hope everybody listening who might be in this camp is making it work, is hanging in there. You know, school year is almost over. So whatever situation you're in, hopefully good, bad, summer's coming. And you better believe we're going to be in camp all day starting in June. Mom signed us up. Also on my mind this week, I couldn't stop thinking about this article from New York Magazine, which our guest today, our co-host and I are going to talk about called Confessions of an Overnight Millionaire. And this anonymous writer talks about how a recent IPO at her tech startup went gangbusters. She made $6 million in her stock options. Whoa. And it was way more than she ever thought. And she's having all these weird, difficult emotions around it. So I'm going to talk to Georgia Lee Hussey, who is back, y'all. Yes, Georgia Lee is back. My friend Georgia, who runs Modernist Financial up in Portland, she's back on the show. We're going to bring her on momentarily, but I thought she would be really uh, wonderful to dive into this with. And we're going to debate because I don't think we're going to necessarily see eye to eye on this, but it's, it's, complicated. It's complex. Let's go to the iTunes review section and pick our reviewer of the week who will get a free 15-minute money session with me. On Wednesday, Nooch and Pooch (laughs) said, I needed that last episode. So the listener says, I've been listening to So Money on and off for two years. I've always gained some valuable pearls from each episode I've heard, but the most recent episode, Think Like a Breadwinner, really hit home. After 12 years together with my husband, I'll be making more with him than him in just a few months. How to allocate the money and also feeling the imposter syndrome has been weighing on me. And this episode made me first enforce that I'm not alone in those feelings, even though I knew that intuitively. And two, realize I need to make a plan on how I imagine the next few years to look with the sudden jump in salary. Thank you, Farnoosh and Jenna. Well, you're so welcome. Please email me at farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com or DM me on Instagram at farnoosh tarabi. Let me know you left this review. I'll send you the link for booking a time for us to hang out for 15 minutes to talk about whatever you want. And for those of you curious about this episode who may have missed it, It wasn't our most, most recent episode, but it did air last week, last Wednesday. Jennifer Barrett wrote a book recently. She's a financial 
expert and she works as an executive at Acorns, which is the investing app. And she's become the breadwinner in her marriage. But even before that, she learned the importance of assuming the mindset of a breadwinner as the woman in the relationship, if you're in a hetero relationship. And her book is called Think Like a Breadwinner. So if you're interested in some of that, check out Wednesday, last Wednesday's episode with Jennifer Barrett. It's called Think Like a Breadwinner. Speaking of our episodes this week, if you didn't catch them, please go back on Monday. My friend Rachel Sklar joined. Rachel is a writer, an entrepreneur, an activist, a single mother, all of the things. And I hadn't talked to her really, you know, for a a lengthy bit of time since pre-pandemic. And actually, we went to lunch Uh, in February of 2020, not knowing that the world was going to turn on its head. And I just wanted to catch up with her because she's one of the smartest people I know, one of the most compassionate people I know. And we talked about all of it, you know, motherhood as a single mom in this pandemic, how it's been for her, selling her business and then starting a new one, finding love in the age of Corona. Yeah, you got to listen to episode 1185 with Rachel Sklar. And then on Wednesday, We had Janice Torres Rodriguez, who is preaching financial freedom for all, but especially Latina women. She's a nationally acclaimed Latina money expert, educator, speaker, writer, coach. She became an accidental entrepreneur after a job loss, and she is recently actually financially free. We recorded this episode with Janice before that. But if you follow her, you know, she takes you on the journey and she recently became financially free. And I just love listening to her. I think she should have her own talk show. Janice Torres Rodriguez on Wednesday. All right. And now shifting gears to the mailbag and bringing on stage our co-host for the day, Georgia Lee Hussey. Welcome. So great to have you in the co-host chair. How have you been? I'm well, thank you. Uh, spring is springing in Portland, and it's such a gift to have sunshine and flowers and cherry yes. blossoms. Yeah, the one time I visited Portland, it uh, it was in the fall, and I, funny enough, it was a beautiful weather day. I, I think we were really lucky in that sense. We, I personally love our weather because I lived in New York and Ohio most of my early life before I moved to Portland. So we have no bliss. We have like once a every three years blizzard, which to me is what I don't want anymore. So yeah, give me a rainy gray day where all I want to do is read a book and I'm very, very happy. Nice. <laughs> well, speaking of reading, have you read, I know you have because I sent it to you, this New York Magazine article, I've been talking about it online all week. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you maybe you came across me posting about this. And uh, you know, I'm a, it's a little unorthodox for Ask Farnoosh. We don't go just straight to the mailbag with our co-hosts. I want to talk about this article first with you because I think you would be a really great person to discuss this with. The article is about uh, confessions of an overnight millionaire. It's an anonymous woman who uh, became very wealthy after the IPO of her company recently. And she feels she goes on to talk about how she has so many conflicted feelings about this that, you know, she never expected to make six million dollars. She thought maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars at best, but it ended up being this really knocking out of the park IPO. I kind of wonder what was it? Maybe it was, um, I don't know. Did you think about that, Georgia? Like what company was this? Maybe Bumble? Yeah, um, maybe. I don't know. I didn't I did I didn't focus as much on that part. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> There's more to talk about than that. But 
<sighs> to use her words, she said that she doesn't know what to do with the money. She feels like when you're when you're quote unquote that rich, the de facto is to like get money managers involved, but she interviewed a few and wasn't impressed. She also comes from a family where they didn't have millions of dollars. And if anything, their mindset around money was not abundant because her dad's telling her like, oh, you better not tell anybody about this. Don't tell any of your relatives. Her mom is a little upset, actually told her uh, that this is bizarre that her daughter, who's now, I guess, in her, I don't think she's maybe still in her 20s, has more in the bank than she and than her mother and her father do. And was a little, to use her words, like resentful, which Mm. like, like, that's a lot to unpack. Mm. And so she's confessing, you know, I don't know what to do with this money. I don't know. Should I, do I even deserve it? I haven't really done anything to earn it other than just like get hired by this company and but she does point out some of the things that it could afford her, which that for me was a high point in the article mm-hmm. where it's like, hey, you know, I've always wanted to be a parent, but I'm not sure if I want to have a partnership or get married. So this is great because now I feel like more independent financially to be able to do that. I can date people without being worried about like, will this work out financially? Because now I've got enough for myself, which is not a little thing. That's a huge thing. A lot of people get in the wrong relationships steered by the economics. But then the cliffhanger is still that she doesn't know what to do. And she's thinking, maybe I'll just give it back to the company. So what did you think about? I sent this to you late yesterday. I apologize. I hope you got a chance to read it, um, Georgia. But what are your top of the line thoughts on this? It's, um, first of all, I have a... I try and come from a place of compassion when anybody is vulnerable enough to show their true money stories. And this person's writing, clear, at one point she says that she's in therapy and it's clear that she's in therapy because she's bringing a lot of awareness to the conf- how many conflicting stories that she has about money and that she's trying to manage and I think that's the first thing is there's a lot of compassion that she's trying to ask important questions and it's messy. And I think it could be really easy for people to judge her. Um, and I watched that well up in myself of some of her ideas. I'm like, really? Okay. Because um, my own intrinsic values, it really, um, some of her ideas are not in alignment with my own values, but that's, you know what she should be looking for in a good money manager is somebody who's not going to project their values onto her, right? That's part of our work is doing doing wealth management. But um, I think I was really uh, impressed by her self-awareness. I was impressed by her vulnerability and admitting that she just doesn't know what to do. And I feel like in the article, she's moving, she keeps trying to move in different directions and she sort of plays it out. Like I could do IVF, that seems problematic. I could buy $15 cheese. I don't even like cheese. I'm buying my doc, my dogs have more doctors than I do. Uh, she won't quite say it, but that one feels also doesn't feel like it's sitting really well. And so I hear as a bottom line, internal conflict about her understanding of her own net worth. And this is a very common issue when we see, we see it show up in, we, as a, culture, we love to tell the stories of athletes who blow all their money, um, movie stars who blow all their money. Um, art, usually it runs around the artists or pe- art people who are specifically not supposed to have access to wealth like this. And um, often 
it's a lot like weight loss really is if you lose all a ton of weight in a very short period of time, generally what happens is your weight goes from X down to X minus Y, and then it goes back to X plus Y, usually because we haven't integrated the behavioral changes into who we are in order to maintain that. And basically the same thing is true. If you have an internal net worth of $2,000 and then there's some kind of windfall and suddenly you have $6 million, you don't have the tool. You literally do not have the tools and internal resources to manage it. And so humans, uncomfortable, try and take control by acting, which is usually the worst thing to do. Um, but that she's, I basically, am, I feel like I'm watching her. I'm like, oh, darling, you are trying so hard to get away from how uncomfortable this is. Well, that's the thing, Georgia. I was like, you're overthinking this, I think. I think she's trying too hard to turn this into something that it isn't. Can we just simplify this for her a little bit? Maybe that would help because I think her having all these internal dialogues going on in her head and then making these assumptions about what this is going to mean to her, for her and the you know how people are going to project it's 6 million dollars maybe you need to just not do anything with it right now it doesn't define who you are bunny doesn't change who you are. She does sound like she's going through a lot of therapy. Money does change who you are. Mm, how so? Maybe we're, we're talking different, like maybe it's just semantics here, but I don't think that like becoming $6 million richer is going to make you, it's going to change who you are in the sense that maybe you were like a kind person and now you're not going to be a kind person or you were a thoughtful person and now you're not going to be a thoughtful person. Like how, how are you seeing this play out? I do think because money is a metaphor for how we interact with ourselves and others, the way but it shouldn't be. This is my point. Well, it should. Why be. are we making it that? But it is. That is a choice. That is a choice. No, I don't think it is. I think we're money is just money. It's not money. Doesn't have a heartbeat. Yes. It doesn't have a mind. But you have to be aware of that. It is a metaphor, right? So if if we're not conscious, if she's not digging into these money stories, I think she will make some bad decisions. I think she's doing exactly the right thing right now, as long as she doesn't take any action in the moment. I think the more she digs up where she feels conflicted, the clearer she'll get about her own intrinsic values. And that's what I see her happening, doing is she keeps being like, my parents taught me this. I reacted this way. I feel this, you know, like money makes me dependent on other people. My worst fear is not possible now. All this stuff is is about, I feel like her individuating in her 20s, which is very normal and developmentally appropriate, and trying to figure out what she wants. And mm. people will look at her differently. I wish we lived in a different world, but we don't. Um, I don't think she's wrong about that. So I think her getting clear on what she wants it to be about is essential. And I think your point is that the best thing to probably do right now is to not do much of anything other than deconcentrate her right. position. I mean, the work that she is doing right now has been prompted by this windfall. But I hope that everybody has these conversations as you do, I think, too. Like, yeah. she was prompted to have these deep dives and these realizations because of this sudden wealth. I agree with you. The work that she is doing right now is constructive but up to a point, right? Don't make any knee-jerk moves. Right. And 
I think whatever clarity she comes to at the end of the day, my thought is that she maybe doesn't have the language yet or the thought process yet to say like, this is what I want to do. This is what I value. This is where I'm aligned here. And then, and then you approach the money with that consciousness. Mm-hmm. And whether it's $6 million or $6,000, I hope that this is a lesson for all of us that like whatever, you know, this, this woman inherited $6 million or earned it, whether you're there or not, it's, is irrelevant. This is the good work that we, needs to happen so that we can always make thoughtful decisions with our money. And that's what I mean is like, she's going to go back, hopefully re-arrive at this money, having done this thought work and therapy, still who she is. But now she has realized it. Mm-hmm. She has taken control of that person that she is, really is. And and so the money maybe was a prompt for her to get there, but it isn't what sort of changed her. Right. You know what I mean? It yeah. just made her more of who she is. Well, it gives her this sort of gate to walk through or this path to walk down and to observe herself in relationship to this new change. Like we've all, we do this in a lot of different ways. Like who am I in the pandemic? Who do I want to be post pandemic? I got really clear on what's important to me and what's not. And a lot of that feels still very open-ended. I don't feel clear about a large portion of it, but some things are super, are super clear. Um, And how we use our wealth feels very similar to me as a metaphor of how we use our time. Right. And that's, a, a primary resource. Um, and so I think your point is exactly, is exactly right that we have to get clear about who we are and who we want to be in relationship to whatever resource we are operating within. Um, and she's just awareing, aware now that she has access to money. She, because the reality is she's always had access to money. She, you know, she talks about growing up in a wealthy town. She has a ton of class privilege. I get the feeling that she's white in part because it's never mentioned. Um, and that there's so much privilege built into this. And I feel like that's one of the things she's really trying to figure out too, is like, what does it mean to be able to buy, you know, have my dog have three doctors when my neighbor doesn't have healthcare? You know, what does it mean to be able to freeze my eggs when, I mean, for me, as I read that as a queer woman, I'm like, I have good friends whose hearts are broken because they can never have children because they don't have money. And that is, that's a thing that is really important to get clear on of, do you want to have children from your own genetic material or do you just want to nurture, nurture the next generation? Is that the real core drive? And maybe it does have to do with IVF. Maybe it doesn't, maybe you do need doctors for your dogs. Maybe you don't, but I think that sort of intrinsic, what is her intrinsic value around this? then she can make a choice. Yes. Yes. And then of course, in the context of the world that we live in today, there is maybe a thought also running in her head of like, what is my responsibility with this wealth? Do I have a responsibility as perhaps this woman of great privilege? I didn't really like technically do anything directly to get this besides win the lottery. And, but here's the other thing. It's like, you go to work for a startup. There is, I think everybody who works at a startup, there's a voice in their head. That's like one day, maybe Mm -hmm. (laughs) we'll, we'll hit the lottery here. And then you do, Mm -hmm. and then you feel bad about it. So it's like, why did you play the game? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, why'd you play the lottery if you didn't think you were going to win? I mean, you could have, and then you did. So then now you're feeling bad. Right. I don't know. But that's how privilege works. 
difference, right? I mean, I think about my own understanding of my whiteness and this sort of like the surprise I feel about or felt that, you know, when I first started doing that work of like, oh, I got this and it's not because I'm lucky. It's because I'm in a system that Mm -hmm. the way I look and the way I was reared and my education, I pass beautifully. I like get to have access to lots of things. And it's not because I'm super smart and super this and super that. It's in part because maybe some of that very small amount, but it's not like to her point, it's like, I just feel lucky to have gotten this. I'm like, babe, it's not luck. It's class and race privilege. You don't get a job at a startup. I mean, if you look, well, at she's that. lucky to be white. That's yeah. the luck part yeah. that the because the system prefers that. Also, can we talk about how I'm guessing she's a woman? I think she may have alluded to that yeah, in the piece. Is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do men walk around like thinking like they're not worthy of six million dollars, however it fell on their laps? I don't know. I, <laughs> I do. I see that a lot, but they don't play it out the way that she does. Like yeah. women, again, cultural money stories, right? Women are given permission to ask these questions and men are are told to posture and pretend they know what the hell they're doing. When uh, nine out of, ten, out of 10, the clients I work with, the women admit they don't know, the men pretend they know. And then I'm like, let's just talk about inflation just so we're all using the same language. And, I, and in large part, I'm doing it because I'm like, dude, I know that you don't feel safe to say you don't know. So I'm just going to level the playing field and make sure we all know what inflation is. Um, But I do think there's a lot of really interesting feminist themes in here that I find super fascinating. Um, Well, we'll move on because um, we want to help our listeners. And there is actually a question here that we've got from a listener about financing IVF. You touched on it. So I think we'll go to that one next. But if anyone wants to read this article, it was in New York Magazine Earlier this week, it came out April 12th. I'll link to it on the So Money Podcast website, but you could probably just do a search engine. Confessions of an overnight millionaire. So juicy. And it's actually connected me to an author who's going to come on So Money in May, early May. A woman, her name is Jen Risher, Jennifer Risher, who didn't just hit the uh, startup lottery once, but twice. When she was working at Google in the 90s, they IPO'd and she made oodles of money. And then her husband, same with Amazon. And she's written a book called uh, We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. And it, I, I think it's just, she's going to, I mean, she lived this woman's experience in New York Mag twice. So uh, looking forward to talking to her about this as well. So stay tuned. There's going to be more on this uh, to come. But let's help out uh, our friend, a listener who's asking, should we finance IVF? And I th- and you've got some obviously some stories here to share, Georgia. But you know I worry. I have a friend going through this, and actually it's with freezing her eggs, which she did finance and is paying it back. And now there's another cost of transferring the eggs. And at this point, it's going to be more money that she doesn't have. And I really, as a friend, I don't know what to say. I really don't because there's nothing that I'm going to say that she's going to want to hear. Other than, yeah, finance, mortgage the house, finance your life. Like, you know what I mean? Like, go for it. You only live once. I'm not, I'm not that friend. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because it could be a complete loss and she could not still become a parent and have this debt. Right. And I think there's an ethical, to me, there's, there's a core ethical question here of why, and it, I don't know what the answer is. It's each individual human's question. Right. But tell me, I would think getting clear on why. There is a 
fear, that means there should be a dollar amount that answers the question or a procedure that answers the question. Um, I think there's a lot of, there often can be other people's expectations like parents or family under you should have children. I woman who decided not to have children. I've struggled, you know, like ha- that's a story I've been, I've dealt with. Um, and I just think there's a lot of getting really clear. And I remember talking to a client once about having a second child and she realized in conversation with her partner that she realized she, this was about other people. It was about the expectations that were being put on her. Um, now she was, um, grateful to be able to, uh, she was in a heterosexual relationship and was able to become pregnant the cheap way. (laughs) But I think the, I think the internal clarity is, is so essential. And, you know, this seems to be my, uh, my chorus line always (laughs) when we talk about things, but you can't answer the question whether you should finance it until you understand exactly why and what the benefit is. And if there are other options, Mm -hmm. debt. Yeah, I mean, if you want a very technical answer to this, and it's just that, you know, finance only enough where you can comfortably make that payment and it's not going to override, derail any other goals you may have. I mean, this is just, you obviously you have to assume this debt and pay it and it's going to be there. And it may be also like a constant reminder to you that your IVF was or wasn't successful. And that's also emotional. So you have to know what your limit is, at which point you're going to consider other options. And there are other options, right? You know, it's obviously a personal decision. So, but I think this is, I just want to pull this back as you are to this core question about debt. And I think you're this important point of you finance the things that are not manageable to pay for in cash that you've tried to, like you can't buy a house in cash unless you are in a, situation where debt is not really the problem. Um, you can't generally pay for college with, um, with cash. And again, unless you have resources. So those two things are the ones that are sort of culturally acceptable to pay for with debt. And I support those for almost all people uh, that I deal with, but also it's like, don't take on more debt than you can, right? Don't buy, buy more house than you can afford. Um, don't, uh, don't go out for a third master's degree on debt if you can't actually pay for that back with the increased earnings that you're going to, to, going to make. And so again, again, it comes down to this core value and does, is it really necessary or are you playing something else out? through this process. Mm -hmm. Right. I hope that more companies in their health benefits will provide this. I know that Condé Nast, I just know because I was on a panel with um, a few other women and one was talking about her IVF process. And she's like, I was fortunate that my company's health benefits funded it Mm -hmm. one round. Mm -hmm. And it's a total crapshoot. You just don't know. Right. But if you're going to get, if you have free access to at least one shot, try that and, you know, cross your fingers. Gosh, Dan, I wish I had, we had like more, <laughs> I should, wish we could just be like, yes, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. finance it all to the moon. But no, obviously no. can't say that. Um, well, you brought up college and Tulip is wondering about 529 college plans and which ones we might recommend. She lives in Texas. Now, it's true that 529 college plans are administered by every state, but you don't have to live in that state to 
take advantage. Like if you live in Texas, Tulip, you don't have to just use Texas's 529 college plan. You could do New York's. But talk, talk a little bit about like sort of the benefits of maybe staying with your state's plan. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if Texas has a tax benefit of staying with a Texas plan. I know in Oregon, there is a tax benefit. In New York, there is a tax benefit. That's where we have clients. Um, California does not. So we choose a non-state-based um, plan for recommending for our clients. But the same um, principles that apply for your own personal retirement investing strategy apply for 529. Um keep the costs down in the actual cost of the investment. That's called the internal expense ratio. Um, generally, I like to keep that cost below 0.3%. Um, oftentimes, you can get much cheaper depending on what the investment options are. You want to have a really robust um, invest uh, pre-built and investment portfolio option, usually I recommend age-based. So kind of like your target date retirement fund, it adjusts the portfolio to be appropriate for the age at which the child is going to go to college. So it gets, it's very risky in the beginning because you're not you have so much time that's not that risky. And then as you get closer to college, it becomes less and le- more and more conservative rather. Texas plans are not tax deductible on state income tax returns. So you know, it may be worth it to look around. You can go to a site. Uh, I like savingforcollege.com. They break it down really nicely there with like historical averages as well as all the tax deductible uh, states and work your way from there. And great to be getting ahead of that. I know I just interviewed Ron Lieber who wrote the book, The Cost You Cost We Pay for College oh, yeah. or The Cost You Pay for College. I used to think that colleges were raising costs just because they could. frankly, and because they were putting in nice gymnasiums and needed to fund them. But Ron's theory is that it's really expensive to hire qualified teachers. Um, And it's getting really competitive to lure professors to certain colleges. They try to be, obviously, that's a huge way that they stay competitive and can demand top dollar. So it's a it's not just like this thing that can go away. You know, I don't know how college is going to get cheaper. I do think some colleges are going to disappear for for good reason, but I don't I don't know. I don't know. So we're just saving all our money basically. <laughs> That's the moral of that story. Okay, last question. Let's help out Muhammad. He wants to know, what is the best investment for a 20-something with a steady paycheck? Now, I'm going to give him a really boring answer. And then maybe, Georgia, you can give them the more exciting one or build on that. But Mohammed, if you've got a steady paycheck, my guess is you work for a company that might have benefits, including a 401k. And here's the thing. We don't often think of a 401k as an investment vehicle. I actually saw an investing expert online say, I like to invest my wife likes to save in her in her 401k and i was like ooh that's not correct no that's well <laughs> that's heavily gendered also uh, there's a lot to unpack there <laughs> so <laughs> the 401k sometimes and just as of yesterday on instagram by an expert gets talked about as a savings vehicle and it's not as glorified as like opening up a portfolio with tesla in it but it is, trust me, it is a, definitely a wonderful investment vehicle for your retirement. So if you've got access to that, that's where I would start. And that's what I would say categorically is best. And then from there, maybe you agree or don't, but I would love to 
to hear your thoughts as well, Georgia. Oh, 100%. So um, 401ks, are, I think, are actually the best investment vehicle um, for most folks who are young because they have tax benefits and tax deferral or tax exemption based on whether there's a Roth option in your 401k. And then you get tax-free growth or tax-deferred growth plus compound interest and compound growth. And that is the most glorious, magical, sparkly unicorn thing you can do with your investments. Um, When I show people a chart of compound growth over 50 years, there are the first 10 to 15 years, which I call the years of boredom because it feels like nothing's happening. But as one of our clients said, I want my pile of bunnies to make more bunnies. And in order to make more bunnies, you got to have more bunnies in the whatever bunny hutch. I don't know if that falls apart at that point. But um, <laughs> this, this point, my point is when you don't have the drag of having to pay taxes on dividends and gains every year, you get to keep growing and you can take more risk as well because the, that risk is beneficial. And so I go back to my earlier recommendation, Muhammad, don't, don't make it fancy. If you want to go buy Tesla, know that you should only buy 5% of your portfolio, overall investment portfolio, including 401ks, Roths, and taxable accounts in fancy, sparkly things that are not boring retirement target date funds or index funds. Um, don't buy, don't go out and feel like you heard something on the news and you know the right stock to buy because you're basically gambling. So yeah. I like to make the difference, but differentiation between investing and gambling. And when a client says to me, or usually a prospect says to me, um, hey, what? how do you determine which tech stocks to buy? I say, um, we just buy them all. Easy way to do it. <laughs> Um, we don't have any idea which one is going to become the hot stock that's going to have these crazy returns. So we buy them all and then we get to enjoy all of them. So when clients say, oh, how's Tesla doing? I'm like, it's doing great in your giant core US fund Um, (laughs) because that helps us disconnect our emotional relationship with the thing that is sparkly and we don't want to sell it when it's going up or down. And that's the most important. So structure, 401k, cheap, easy. If it makes you excited, you're probably not doing it right. I like that. We're going to end on that. If it's... (laughs) If it's making you excited, you're not. Oh my gosh, the words to live by. <laughs> Georgia Lee Hussey, thank you so much. Everyone check out modernistfinancial.com. I'm going to put that link also on our website, as well as the New York Magazine article. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. I knew you'd be the right person to talk uh, about to talk to you about this article. Oh, I could go on. Never a dull moment yeah, with you. I'd love to have a conversation with this person. It'd be fascinating. And I just want to point out that she's right. The finance industry is totally broken. And that's why I started my company. Yeah. No, it's got a lot of, you no, know, she's definitely a lot of truth bombs in this piece totally. for sure. Um, I would like to. I would like to be friends with her. Would love for you to take me out for dinner, actually. (laughs) Everybody, hey, I hope your weekend is so money. 